0: an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Good evening, everyone. I, uh, in fact, do have uh, two of my children studying here at Franciscan, and, and uh, as, as luck would have it, uh, they happen to be here tonight. So I don't know if uh, the rest of you know Hannah Mosier and, and Andrew Mosier but uh, they're in this room in a, in a very touching demonstration of filial loyalty <laughs> which was brought on by o- my order to come tonight. <laughs> now the book that uh, Professor Skarnecki was mentioning was called A Mother's Ordeal and I will, I will get to the book in a minute but uh, it's still out there. Uh, we now have a, uh, a version in Russian coming out uh, a result of the trip that uh, a number of us made to Russia a few months ago to participate in a demographic summit in this country to talk about what could be done to save the dying Russian people. Now, over the next few weeks, you aren't going to hear very much about dying populations, I'm afraid. In fact, you're gonna be hearing a lot about the opposite view, of the view that we're overpopulated, the view that we are breeding ourselves off the face of the planet, the view that human beings are a kind of plague on the planet and that the planet would be better off without most, if not all of us. You will be hearing about those things because the United Nations Population Fund, which is one of the principal population control agencies in the world, has declared October 31st of this year to be what they call ominously the Day of 7 Billion. I prefer to call it the Birthday of Baby 7 Billion. But they're very clever at the UN Population Fund. They carefully frame issues and they carefully choose words, use a language that, uh, that underlines what the fears that they're trying to promote. And the fear that they're trying to promote is that uh, the world is becoming overpopulated. Now. Truth be told, neither I nor any other demographer has any idea exactly when baby 7 billion will be born. We have accurate census data from developed countries, but the census data from less developed countries from places uh, like Africa, uh, even China is notoriously unreliable. So we may be passing seven, we may have passed seven billion already. We may not pass seven billion until sometime next year. Reflect on the fact that they chose October 31st, Halloween, to tell us that it was the day of seven billion. I think they they probably think of us as superstitious medieval villagers who are still afraid of witches and warlocks and ghosts and goblins. And so we're trying to link Halloween, scary, scary, aspect of Halloween to to this idea that we should be scared by the advent of the 7th billion person. Well, I for one am not frightened. Uh, In fact, we're celebrating. We're celebrating the birth of baby 7 billion because first of all, the planet has never had 7 billion people on it at the same time before. What does that represent? What does that milestone represent? Well, first and foremost, it represents a great victory over death. it represents lengthening lifespans. At the end of World War II, the average lifespan on the planet Earth for a baby born in, say, 1946, was, was 35, 36 years of age. Now we are closing in on 70. And naturally, if people are living twice as long, there are going to be many more of us around at any given time. There were three billion of us in 1960. We passed. Six billion in 1999, and now we're hitting now we're hitting seven billion. A large part of that increase is because of lengthening lifespans. And what results in lengthening lifespans? What causes lengthening lifespans? Well, you can you can imagine the factors for yourself. Better housing, better food, better health care, especially during infancy and childhood, all contributes to lengthening lifespans. Rising prosperity, a general rise in the level of well being, all contributes to lengthening lifespans. Why should that be something that we shouldn't celebrate? Now, the other side is busy frightening us with fearsome future scenarios. In fact, I ran into a few of those scenarios a couple days ago. I debated an overpopulation theorist on the British Broadcasting Corporation Worldwide Broadcast. And this fellow told us in no uncertain terms that he was very worried about the fact that if the human population continued to expand that world fish stocks would disappear. That was one of his chief arguments for driving down the birth rate around the world. He also warned us about the horrors of global warming that would be visited upon us in 50 or 100 years or 200 years. He wasn't clear about the exact timing of it. Of course, no one on that side of the argument is. But he was certain that if we kept having children, that uh, and, and knowing, as Al Gore once told us, that babies cause global warming. <laughs> he actually did say that. Um, never retracted, as far as I know. Um, that uh, that if the population kept growing, that, that problem with global warming and only get worse. Fortunately the host who I think went into the show with the idea that yes the world was overpopulated and yes we've got to have this guy you know on the other side of the issue namely me making the 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 contrary case. Um, In fact I'm sure of that because the show opened with ominous music playing in the background and a clock ticking tick tock tick tock and the host intoned while you are listening to my brief message, two more children would have been added to the population of the earth and so on. So they had framed the show to be a fearful presentation about too many people in the, in the world and had me on just for balance. Well, the first thing that I said in response to this fellow who was worried about global warming and declining fish stocks was this, that, 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 that look, the population of the world will never double again. Everyone agrees that the population of the world will peak sometime in the next few decades and then it will begin to decline. And it will peak at around 8 billion, 9 billion, no one knows for sure. It depends on the fertility decisions of you and your future spouses in large part. But it will decline. And by the end of the century, we will probably be back at 7 billion again because as population declines, we will decrease from 8 billion down to 7 billion. In fact, we just put out a a new YouTube video at PRI that makes precisely this point that the population of the world is increasing slower and slower, will peak, and then will begin to decline. We We showed the population of the world as being a series of cars on a roller coaster. And as the roller coaster goes up to the top, we add cars, and then it reaches the top and starts back down, picking up speed, and the cars begin dropping off, and you hear screaming in the background. Well, you always hear screaming on a roller coaster. I can't show that tonight, but it's a a great uh, cartoon illustration of where we're going. And I told my BBC host, I said, look, what this means is that our long-term problem is not going to be too many people. It's going to be too few people. Our long-term problem is not going to be too many children. It's going to be too few children. And that brings me to Russia, or it could bring me to Japan, or we could talk about Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea we could talk about uh, all of Europe, for example, because all of the places I've mentioned are actually losing people from year to year. These are places that are filling more coffins than cradles each year, where they're closing down the maternity wards in hospitals and opening up geriatric wards in their place. A large part uh, of the economic malaise that we see in the world, in Europe, for example, centered on Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy, those countries that are already technically bankrupt and may drag the rest of Europe down with it, all of those countries are in the midst of aging and depopulation, and they have been for some time. And you can't maintain an economy if the numbers of people are declining from year to year. If you have fewer and fewer workers coming into the workforce and you have more and more people retiring and demanding that the government keep the intergenerational promises that were made 30, 40 years before, in times of continued imagined prosperity forever. So you've got countries like Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, averaging, couples average only slightly more than one child. The numbers don't work out. Every couple has to have 2.1 children, two children. A few have to average more in order to replace the current population. If you're only averaging one child, your population is going to decline rapidly over time. We were invited to Moscow, a number of us, in, at the end of May uh, because the Russian government's very concerned has been now for a number of years about uh, Russia's declining population. Russia, with about 144 million people this year, is losing three-quarters of a million people each year. That means by the end of the, the, end of the century there will be probably uh, 100 million Russians, maybe fewer left. The government several years ago put in place the largest family bonus in the world, a child bonus in the world, I should call it. Every baby born in Russia is given a $13,500 payment by the Russian government. It's a one-time payment that you receive upon the birth of a first or second or third child. That is a kind of desperate stopgap measure to try to raise the Russian birth rate. Because if the Russians don't start having children, they'd better decide who they want to give their country to because they obviously don't want it themselves. And there are other more prolific peoples, I think, who would move in. Just look down down south of uh, Siberia and the Russian Far East at China, for example, which would like to have additional living room, additional Lebensraum, and and already moving by the millions across the border illegally into the Russian Far East and Siberia. There are now probably, in fact, more Chinese in the Russian Far East and Siberia than there are Russians. There are an estimated eight million illegally uh, living Chinese illegally living in 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 Russia east of the Urals, and there are about six million uh, Russians uh, there in that same area right now. So I had fun uh, with uh, the fellow on the BBC. So the first point was the population of the world is never going to double again. The second, the second point was. uh, that, uh, that people in their numbers may cause uh, certain problems, environmental problems, for example. But people at the same time are also the solution to the very environmental problems that they cause. When countries begin to develop and go through early industrialization as China's going through now, uh, you tend to get air pollution, water pollution, um, Pollutants released into, into the soils, but over time, in an open society with a free press, the complaints of ordinary people will lead to cleanup efforts that put places like Lake Lake Erie back in the business of producing fish, uh, where they had been dead bodies of water in decades past. Now that whole process has been sort of short-circuited in China, which has the worst environmental uh, catastrophes in the world, precisely because China is not an open society. The Chinese Communist Party is bent on development at all costs, and is willing to allow the Chinese people to pay the price in, in terms of uh, more cases of lung and throat cancer, for example, from air pollution. Uh, more cases of tainted food. Uh, you may recall last year the babies who were dying because uh, the uh, the powdered milk had been uh, had been tampered with with an artificial uh, additive that resembled. Protein in the chemical test, but was actually a deadly poison, killing hundreds of infants in China. So the worst environmental catastrophes in the world are not caused by people in their numbers. They're caused by governments which are unresponsive to the demands of the people to take care of the environment to conserve natural resources. The same thing can be said about famine. The worst famines in the world, the ones that are happening right now, the ones that happened over the last 50 years, were not caused by overpopulation. They were caused by war, by civil unrest, or by governments using food as a weapon against certain segments of the population. Now this very thing happened in China in the early 1960s. China had the worst famine in human history from 1960 to 1962. About 50 million people died of starvation during those years. And they died of starvation during those years because in the preceding years, the Chinese rural population had been forced into gigantic people's communes, which were run by communist party members who didn't have a clue about how, when to plant, when to harvest, when to fertilize, and so forth. Didn't have a clue as to how to run a giant agricultural collective. And to make matters worse they were under orders to do things like instead of concentrating on producing grain they were under orders to to build backyard uh, steel smelters to increase iron and steel production in China. And of course being good communist cadres they followed orders. Crops were left to rot in the fields and when hunger struck in China Chairman Mao made a critical decision. He decided not to let the world know that China was starving, because that would lose face for himself and for the Chinese Communist Party. So he decided to keep this massive famine a secret. But he also knew that in order to stay in power, he had to keep the army well-fed, because you don't want the guys with the guns to get too hungry, because they might decide that you're not doing a very good job and replace you. And so he sent the People's Liberation Army into the countryside to collect the last stores of grain from starving villages. He deliberately swept through the countryside collecting all of the grain, all of the food, brought it to the cities. The army ate reasonably well. The urban population was put on short rations and they tightened their belts. But the rural population was left to starve. When I arrived in China, my first trip to China in 1979, I was visiting a village, large village, more like a town of 8,000 people. And my friends took me to a local grave where were buried 200 people who had starved to death during the famine after the Great Leap Forward, this famine I'm talking about from 1960 to 1962. And there they lay in, in unmarked graves. Mostly the elderly and the very young because they're the first to go in, in a famine situation. So again, the worst famine in human history wasn't caused by something called overpopulation. It was called by, caused by, by government mismanagement of the economy and by deliberate decision on the part of China's leader to allow people in the countryside to starve so that the army could be fed. And so it goes, every time someone brings up a problem supposedly caused by overpopulation, if you look closely at it, it has other causes. It has other causes that have nothing to do with with how many people are living in in a given area. Overpopulation has never been defined, it can't be defined because the number of people that can be supported in a given area depends on the level of technology that you enjoy. I was an anthropologist at one time and we calculated that that hunter-gatherers could only have a population density of about two people per square mile because they were going about digging up roots and tubers and hunting animals and the land couldn't support more than two people per square mile. But then you move into slash and burn agriculture and the land can support a couple hundred people per square mile. Then you have settled agriculture with, with, with fertilization, the land can support many hundreds. Then you go into irrigation, the land can support more, and then you move into industrial, the industrial age, and you have a barren island like Hong Kong, which in 1840 had a population of 2,000 people living in a couple of fishing villages. And now today, that area plus the new territories has a population of six and a half million people with a first world standard of living. So you cannot say, that this country simply because it has a large population is overpopulated. The most densely populated countries in the world are the most developed. The most densely populated country in Europe is the Netherlands. And those of you who've been to the Netherlands know that the Netherlands is not uh, is not overpopulated. Uh, There are lots of people there and they're very prosperous. See people lead to prosperity. And it's easy to see how that happens. As population grows, that that very growth creates scarcities in certain goods. And in an open society, in a free market, you then have opportunities for entrepreneurs to come in and create substitute goods, or to manufacture more goods, or to invent new products to meet this new demand caused by increasing population. And at the end of the day, you have more people and more goods available at a lower price. And the whole process is driven by population growth. And, and if you look at the vast span of human history, going back to, we'll start at 1800 when, when the world's population first hit 1 billion. The average income, per capita income in 1800 was about $100 worldwide. We were a little bit better in the United States. We had lots of land. Uh, So we were about $300 per capita, but the average was about $100. In 1927, we passed $2 billion, but per capita income had not just doubled, it had increased to $500 ahead. In in 1960, we passed $3 billion. Again, per capita income had not just gone up by 50%, it had tripled to $1,500. We passed $6 billion in 1999, per capita income worldwide was about $5,000. So, as our numbers have grown, our prosperity has grown even faster. And if you think about it, it only makes sense because you've got more creative intelligences at work solving uh, problems, uh, technical problems, scientific problems, production problems, learning how to produce more grain from less land, learning how to take sand on the beach and turn it into silicon chips and make our lives easier. learning how to take, uh, and, uh, one time I addressed a legatus group and Tom Monahan was there. And so I said, learning how to take pizza dough and make it into a 10 minute pizza. I, I think he'd heard a lot of pizza jokes. He didn't think that was very funny. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, how, that's how the whole process works. You know, and, and the other side is a side of limits. It, it's a side of, uh, of the fixed pie. The other side, the view that the world is over- overpopulated is proposed by people who believe that the pie is fixed in some way, that land is fixed, that water is fixed, that air is fixed, there's only so much there is no more, that, that, that uh, petroleum is fixed, that zinc and chromium, there are only certain amounts available in the earth's crust. Uh, only there, There's a fixed pie and so the job on the part of people on the left in their view is to apportion the pie. That's why we call them redistributionists. They want to take part of the pie from people who have large slices and give it to people who have smaller slices or none at all. Now our view is that the pie is not fixed and that given the creative genius of man which is a gift of God that we can enlarge the pie that we're sitting down at a banquet table here on earth not with a fixed number of seats but a banquet table of infinite length and we can add more seats to the table instead of expecting the people seated at the table to give up their seat to someone else. We want to set more seats at the banquet table of life and improve the livelihood of everyone. Now at the end of the show on the BBC, uh, the host was getting a little desperate. I could, I could tell it from his voice because he went back to my opponent and he said, "Well." well, you know, uh, these are some very strong arguments on the other side. What do you have to say about about the future of the human race? And my opponent, a British gentleman, said, well, you have to understand that if the world population keeps increasing, that human beings are facing extinction. (laughs) And the host said, don't you think that's a little extreme? (laughs) Um, so anyway it's great fun to, uh, to debate these guys. Uh, I, I should uh, since I mentioned fish stocks earlier I should I should mention that the way to uh, the, the way to preserve fish stocks uh, in the world is to enforce current bans on, on fishing in certain places where fish spawn and enforce bans on catching fish that are below a certain size that haven't reproduced yet uh, to enforce bans on whaling, for example, bans that are widely violated by uh, by the Japanese, for example, because we know how to, to preserve and protect a resource uh, when we put our minds to it. Um, but if people willfully violate the law and, and fish the fish stocks down to extinction, uh, that won't be because of too many people. That won't be because there are too many mouths to feed or too many babies. It will be because people violated the laws that were laid down to protect the fish stocks for future generations to consume. Now, I mentioned China a little bit. I should, probably, I should probably come back to China now because I first was introduced to these questions, the whole question of whether uh, the world or, or China was overpopulated uh, back in 1979 in China. Because I was in China at the very time that the one-child policy began. I had no idea what I was getting into, of course. I was at Stanford University. I was teaching at the University of California, at Berkeley. And I was selected to go to China and and study study how life had changed uh, after 30 years of communist rule, 1949 and 1979. And I arrived just in time to be caught up in the most horrific and barbaric population control program the world has ever seen. Uh, The world knows it as the one-child policy but it is in fact a policy where the government dictates how many babies will be born in China each year, where the government hands down to officials at all levels a quota of babies that they are allowed, that they are to allow to see the light of day. And so provincial officials and prefectural officials and county officials and and, uh, township officials and municipal officials will all have uh, numbers of babies who are allowed to be born. And if they violate their quote, if they allow illegal children to be born, the officials are punished. So for them, it's a matter of their career. Of course, for the couples who are trying to have uh, a second child or a third child, it's literally a matter of life and death. The policy is enforced by means of forced abortion and forced sterilization and forced contraception. It was in March of 1980 when the first group of women in my village were arrested for the crime of being pregnant. And my question to the local party secretary was, you know, have these, are these women seriously being accused of, of having committed a crime? And he said, yes, uh, the, the latest party directive makes it a crime to get pregnant outside the plan. And in fact, I have copies of arrest warrants that we issued for these women. And in the box, in the square on the arrest warrant, where is to be written the crime that the person being arrested is being charged with is actually written the word huayun, which means pregnant in Chinese. So these women were arrested for the crime of being pregnant. They were locked up. Uh, They were subjected to morning to night propaganda sessions, uh, sessions at which senior party officials told them they had no choice but to go in for an abortion. And at the end of the day, all of them did what they were told, some of them voluntarily, well, there was nothing voluntary about the whole process, but some of them went in without, without the need for additional coercion and some had to be taken in uh, by, by local population control officials. There they were given lethal injections uh, into the uterus and their babies were delivered uh, in many cases by cesarean section abortion. There were also cases of women who uh, refused uh, to go in for the abortion and went into labor uh, before uh, they had been given the lethal injection. And in those cases, the babies are killed at birth by lethal injection into the fontanelle, the soft spot of the baby's head. Now this happened in 1980, in my presence, and, and uh, I'm, I'm sad to report to you that 31 years later, uh, such crimes are still being visited op- upon the Chinese people today. These abuses are still occurring. In fact, there was, there was, um, recently a hearing uh, held by the House Foreign Affairs Committee at which uh, over a dozen recent cases of forced abortions were brought to light, complete with names and dates and and location where these these crimes had taken place. And the numbers could be multiplied almost indefinitely. Um, A friend of mine, uh, Congressman Tim Holzkamp from Kansas, uh, was in a meeting with the, party sec- the former party secretary of the Chinese Ministry of Health and Congressman Holzkamp asked him, how many people do you think you've eliminated from your population in China because of the one child policy? And the official was very proud to announce that, that the one child policy had resulted in the elimination of 400 million people from the Chinese population. And he went on to say proudly that The population of missing Chinese is actually greater than the population of the United States, which is about 312 million. And he was right. And you have to ask yourself, is China, by eliminating 400 million of the most productive, enterprising, intelligent people the world has ever seen, better off or worse off? Has the Chinese Communist Party lost its collective mind? They're eliminating the ultimate resource. They're eliminating the human resource, the one resource you can't do without, the creative God-given intelligence. Each baby born in China would have contributed over his or her lifetime several thousand dollars more to the gross national product than they would have consumed. You can can crunch the numbers as, as we have. And so every abortion in China or in India or in the United States is the death of a small fortune it makes us all poor. Of course, we know it makes us poor in a, in a, in a, in a spiritual sense. Uh, we know it's dehumanizing, but it also makes us poor in, a, in an economic sense as well. And that's an argument that I think we can use with some effect on those people who do not share our faith and our belief, uh, not just in this world, but, but in the next. Uh, fundamentally, there are only two views of human nature. There's the view that uh, we are only a little higher than the apes, and there's the other view that we are only a little lower than the angels. Now, if you're on the side of the apes, and I'm not, but if you're on the side of the apes, I suppose it makes a certain sense to think about thinning the herd or weeding out the weak and the unfit, like the social Darwinists argued. It makes a certain sense to go into the homes for the physically handicapped as they did in 1933 in Nazi Germany and eliminate 600,000 of what Hitler called useless eaters. It makes a certain sense if you think we're only a little higher than the apes to go about the world and tell people in Latin America, in Asia, and Africa that uh, they're having too many children and they're using up the resources of planet Earth at an alarming pace and It makes a certain sense to carry out population control campaigns among their number and sterilize them and and contracept them and send boatloads of contraceptives and sterilizing equipment to those countries. It makes a certain sense. But for those of us on the side of the angels, it is an attack on, on individuals everywhere who are fundamentally equal in that we all possess an immortal soul and that we all share the same destiny as human beings. And of course, their project of driving down the birth rate and reducing the population and promoting abortion doesn't even make sense really on the face of it, in the face of declining birth rates everywhere, in the face of the fact that our long-term problem is not too many people but too few people, in the face of the fact that when you take money away from healthcare, and put it into doing abortions and sterilizations and contraceptions, the infant and child mortality rate goes up. And so you have to put more money into abortion, sterilization, and contraception to drive the birth rate back down. Wouldn't it be better, I tell them, to put your money into primary health care programs that reduce the infant and child mortality rate? Because the biggest determinant of birth rates is fertility desires. A couple that wants to have a large family generally winds up with a lot of children. A couple that wants to have a small family generally winds up with few children. Even if that couple lives in Africa, even if that couple does not have what the other side likes to call access to to modern contraceptive methods, they control their own fertility. And so I tell people on the population control side of the equation, If we would take the billion dollars you're currently using to promote abortion, sterilization, contraception around around the world and put it into primary health care, the infant and child mortality rate would go down in in many countries and the birth rate would follow. This is commonly understood. This is what we call the demographic transition. It's happened in country after country after country and it will happen in the remaining less developed countries of the world. So that what we should really do in terms of helping people is follow the advice of the better angels of our nature and help to save lives instead of taking lives. Now I'm gonna close by mentioning three books all of which I had a hand in putting together. Uh, One is A Mother's Ordeal. Professor I already mentioned this. This is the gripping story of one woman's fight against China's one child policy. Uh, this woman became pregnant with a second child, an illegal child, and managed to, um, to save that child with the help from some, some good Catholics in this country. Uh, but her story is interesting because before she became pregnant with her second child, illegal child, she was a population control worker. She was in the business of arresting women for the crime of being pregnant with a second child. She was in the business of locking them up. She was in the business of giving pelvic examinations to young women every three months to make sure they weren't pregnant and scheduling abortions for them if they were. And then all of a sudden she herself became pregnant with a second child and she decided she wanted to keep this baby. So it's an interesting story. It's a story that uh, I wrote some years ago but it still could be written again today because there's still stories coming out of China like this. In fact, One of the things that we at the Population Research Institute do is we run safe houses in China for women fleeing forced abortions. We have several of those houses and the women generally come to us when they're five or six months pregnant. Um, You know what, pregnancy can be hidden for the first few months of, of, uh, your pregnancy can be hidden for the first few months but after a while it begins to show and about the time the women begin to show they're visited by population control officials who realizing they're pregnant order them to go on for abortions. These women are Catholic, they're told by nuns and, and priests that we know to there, there's a place they can go to safely live and give birth. Um, and there are stories, uh, I, I should write down the stories from the safe house of these, of these women. The second book I'd like to mention is, is Population Control Real Costs and Illusory Benefits. This is the whole story of the population control enterprise from its beginning. How certain groups of people set out to reduce the numbers of people on the planet. And you know, their, their basic motto is this. Their basic motto of the population controllers is there are just enough of us, but there are way too many of you. There are just enough of us, there are way too many of you. Because the population control programs are designed by people who generally believe that there should be more people like them. For example, in the 1920s, when, um, when, when, when uh, certain wealthy uh, wasps in the Northeast were convinced by Margaret Sanger to begin funding uh, birth control clinics, they handed over the money because they were told the clinics would be located in neighborhoods uh, with lots of Irish and Italian and Puerto Rican immigrants again there are just enough of us but there are way too many of those other people and that's how population control programs work. And finally um, I was asked by Donna Steichen last year to write my conversion story and it's included in this book Chosen and it's called Finding God in China because I did indeed find God in China in an odd sort of way in that operating room where A woman was being, receiving an abortion, cesarean section abortion at at, seven and a half, eight months gestation. That was such a great evil that I was forced to seek a compensating good. And if you seek the good, you will be led to find God over time. So that story is in in that book. Let me close by saying that uh, There's plenty of room on God's green earth for all of us, red and yellow, black and white. And the effort to reduce human numbers is ultimately, in my view, diabolical because we know that God said, be fruitful and multiply to our first parents. And I do not believe that commandment or any commandment for that matter has ever been rescinded. And one can imagine uh, the dark angel who was cast out of heaven and took with him legions of other angels who became devils would have said the contrary. He would have said, be barren and sterilize yourselves. So the enemy of life is obviously on the side of abortion, sterilization, and contraception. And those of us who hold the opposite view uh, have to be on the side of life consistently. There is no overpopulation on God's green earth, and I don't believe there can be. Uh, in this sense, that God at the beginning of time, knowing how our needs and numbers would grow, would have created a world in which resources were in a sense pre-positioned to be unlocked over time as our needs and numbers grew and unlocked by our creative God-given intelligence. And that in fact seems to be happening. I mean, human beings have enough sense not to overstock a fish tank, surely God in his omniscience would have given us a planet that was capable of meeting our needs as our numbers grew. And of course, we know for certain that not only is there no overpopulation problem in this world, uh, there can be no overpopulation problem in the next either. Because did not our Lord say there are many mansions in my father's house? And is it not our job as Catholics to fill them? Thank you an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.